Today on the show, I have an interview for you with renowned real estate investor and author, John Schaub. We're going to talk about how to get rich with real estate, but we're going to do it in the non-sleazy way. Just straight up information, a little bit of inspiration, but not based on grandiose stories, but on straightforward facts. Enjoy. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and today is Monday, December 15, 2014. Today, we're going to spend some time on the investing side of the three-legged stool that we talk about all the time of income, expenses, and rate of return. We're going to talk about how to maximize your returns and grow your wealth with real estate investing. I've learned over the years to actually tread very carefully in the world of real estate investing. (laughs) I learned the hard way, uh, which you'll hear about a little bit in today's show. But I've learned the hard way, and I really respect and admire, though, people who can share information about real estate investing and who can do so in a straightforward way where they can share ideas, strategies, tools, tactics, techniques – and most of all, encourage you toward action. And my guest today is one of the good, one of the good guys. Uh, he is the author of actually my most recommended real estate book. His book, uh, he has a book that he wrote called Building Wealth One House at a Time. He has uh, several books. And his book, Building Wealth One House at a Time, is my go-to resource for somebody who says, I'm interested in becoming a real estate investor, but I haven't done it, and I don't know much about it. And it is my best go-to introduction. John's a really great guy. He's a class act in every way, and he brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to the table. So sit back, grab a pen and a piece of paper. You're going to want one for today's interview, and enjoy this interview with John. John, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I appreciate you making time for me this morning. Thank you, Joshua. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> I brought you on to discuss one of my favorite topics and topic that you're in, you're an expert in, which is real estate. And I've got some specific lines of questioning that uh, I want to pursue. But would you start by sharing a little bit of your background with real estate, how you got into it, and what your experience has been over the decades as a real estate investor? Yeah. Well, I got into it. I, you know, I had, as a kid, like many folks did, had several different jobs. And, uh, you know, I worked in restaurants. I worked construction. I went to college. While I was in college, I managed an apartment building. And I got lucky one day. A guy came along and wanted to buy it, so I sold it to him. And I collected my first commission back when I was in college. So I got my real estate license early. And I was in the brokerage business for a few years, but decided I didn't like the brokerage business. And then started investing back in the early 70s. And I still had the first property that I ever bought. I bought in 1973. I still own it. And, uh, you know, just through trial and error over the last 40 years, I've been buying and managing properties and, and learning which ones were the easiest to manage and which ones made me the most money and which ones had the, the least amount of risk and, and gave me the best lifestyle. And I'm, I'm kind of a lifestyle guy. Uh, I, I, I'm in favor of owning properties free and clear. Uh, we paid cash for our house and we bought it back in 1980-something. And, and uh and, you know, I've encouraged kids. I wrote a book back in the 80s called uh, How to Own the House of Your Dreams, Free and Clear. And, and 
so I'm, I'm a, a guy who, who likes to, to be free of debt, uh, but I do understand leverage, and, and there is a, a safe way to borrow money in the real estate business. There is safe leverage, and, and uh, you know, it's hard to accumulate a lot of money without using some kind of leverage, but you have to have your head on straight about it. There are some people who are just totally anti-leverage, and, and I respect that, but it is very hard to accumulate a large capital base unless you use some leverage to start with. So that's, that's, you know, that's it in a nutshell. I, today I own and manage... Uh, my own properties. Uh, at one time, I had a lot more property, and I had a large staff. Today, I, I operate just my wife and myself, just the two of us, and we, we manage our own properties. Uh, and it gives us quite quite a lot of freedom. You know, we travel a lot. My daughter lives in Australia, so we're in Australia quite a bit. And, and, and I can manage my properties today from any place in the world uh, because I have good long-term tenants, and, and uh, you know, just like family. Every, everybody likes everybody. Everybody benefits uh, from, from being... And part of the group here, the people who live in my houses, and I, I own nothing but houses, the people who live in my houses want to live in my houses. They respect the houses. They respect me. So we, we don't have any big issues. And, and that's totally different from where I started. I started off buying apartments and duplexes and you know, commercial buildings and, and all sorts of uh, different kind of income properties. And, and uh, I can tell you that end of the business is, is a constant battle because people are, are always coming and going, which requires you to work a lot as a landlord. And then the other side of it is many of them are trying to beat you out of your money, and they negotiate all the time, and so you're, you're fighting with folks. And, and that's not a situation I'm in today at all. We, we, we have team players as tenants, and uh, if, they're not, if they don't want to be on the team, it's not a problem. They can leave. But the only people who live in my houses are team players who, who you know, respect the property, who respect me, who pay on time, who take care of the property, and who stay for a very long time. My average tenant stays eight or ten years. So uh, that, that, that makes life better, and, and that's all. That's a different model than most people are used to. Uh, most people think a landlord is, is somebody who's charging too much rent and extracting too much for folks and taking advantage of them, and, and that's not our game plan at all. So that, that's it in a nutshell. You're, are you, you must be one of the leading champions of at least the advantages of single-family housing. I remember the first book of yours that I ever read was uh, Building Wealth One House at a Time, and it really, I thought you made a compelling case for single-family housing versus other forms of real estate, what would cause somebody to look at other forms of, of real estate instead of single-family housing, though? You just made a little bit of the case for it, but what would send someone in the direction of looking at apartment buildings or other ways of investing? Well, if you have a lot of money, if you're trying to, to, to invest billions of dollars, uh, the hedge funds are investing billions of dollars in houses now, but this is the first time I've ever seen uh, that kind of money come into the house market. And they won't stay in it very long because the management uh, style that, that they are using is not going to work for them. Their, their expenses are going to be a lot higher than they projected, and uh, they're going to have a lot more turnover than they thought because you know, they, they don't operate like I do. They don't have this, 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 uh, this team. You know, they're they're uh, trying to extract as much money as they can from their tenants, and that's not a good plan long term. Uh, but, you know, I have owned other property, and, and if I had to invest, $50 million in a year, I wouldn't buy houses. I'd have to go out and buy something bigger, probably land or or maybe maybe a, a, a large income property that would be professionally managed. But for the little guy getting started, you know, when I started with no money, I was a little guy. I was not, I didn't inherit a bunch of money or anything. So uh, when I when I started buying property, I had to buy with a, with a relatively small down payment, you know, $500, $1,000 down and find somebody who would finance it for me because the banks wouldn't lend me any money. And, and I, I learned over the years that there are a lot of people that would do that, that, that would, that would uh, finance the purchase of a property, and, and especially people who didn't want properties. And some of those, of course, were, were uh, kind of rough. They needed work. They were harder to manage. And 
so you know if you wanted to get started in this business, you can buy all the the, the rundown houses and duplexes and apartment buildings you want that are that are mismanaged. You can buy those properties easily with owner financing today, but they're a job. You know, it takes a lot of work to manage those. So, so the key long term, your your strategy long term, if you want a, a you know a good lifestyle, is to end up with some properties that that sort of self manage. And you know, and that's uh, I don't want no one to anybody to believe that that there's no work at all involved here. But I can do everything I need to do to manage my properties with my cell phone from Australia. Uh, and I do it with email. I don't even have to talk to folks. Uh, so if something breaks, it's, it's pretty easy to email somebody and get it fixed. Uh, and if somebody does move out when I'm well, far, far, far away, now it's just this empty for, for a month until I come back. But, you know, that's part of the price I pay for, for my lifestyle, and, and, uh, and I can live with that. But I, I resist the, the temptation to get into bigger properties for a couple of reasons. One is liquidity. If you look around uh, most markets today, you'll find there's still quite a bit of empty commercial building. Uh, and and uh, same thing with office space and, and and these things these buildings sometimes become obsolete. Uh, the markets change and there's no need for them. So you know it's, it's not unusual to see a, a building sit empty for a year or two, or or even somebody tear down a ten year old commercial building just because it's obsolete. A uh, house is a whole different animal. And if you buy houses in neighborhoods that are stable and improving, uh, those houses will probably be there 50 years from now. And uh, you know there, there's neighborhoods in most towns that have been there 50 years and. And some of those neighborhoods are getting better and better. So, so I tend to buy in those neighborhoods. Uh, it, it's certainly a simpler way to buy real estate. And uh, again, for the guy, person who's getting started, uh, and, and uh, you know wants to own maybe five or ten income properties that'll produce enough income to, to support their lifestyle, it, it just makes more sense to me. If you're sitting down having a cup of coffee with a bright, uh, energetic young high school graduate or or college student. And this young man or woman is saying to you, you know, Mr. Schaub, can you can you give me some advice of how I can be uh, how I can be rich and financially independent like you? What would be the path that you would lay out for this person of how to go from nothing to wealth? Well, if you're going to do it in real estate, uh, one of the keys is management. So you have to learn how to manage people, how to talk to people, uh, how to, to recognize folks who are going to. Uh, do business with you if you're buying property and, and how to recognize a, a good tenant and, and how to attract that potential tenant. So probably it wouldn't be a bad idea. I have three children, by the way, so I've given this advice before. wouldn't be a bad idea to get involved in, in some business where you're managing other people and, and, and develop that skill because that's a very valuable skill. Uh, from a real estate perspective, it's important to know where you're going to be. Uh, buying property far away from where you're going to live is not a good plan. So. You have to, you know, the challenge I think most young people have is they're not sure where they're going to live for the next 10 years or who they're going to live with, and a lot of things are going to change in their lives. Uh, so for most people, probably I wouldn't recommend that a 20-year-old go out and buy property unless they were confident that this is the town they're going to stay in for, for the next five or 10 years. Because yeah. if you buy it and have to sell it next year, you're probably not going to make any money. Uh, but once you establish that, uh, then... A systematic accumulation of good properties. Uh, you know, if I look at the mistakes I've made, and I've made many mistakes, it's generally buying something that didn't turn out to be a good property uh, from a management standpoint, uh, or, or you know, that I, I uh, thought it was in the path of progress and progress never came, or I got involved in some bad financing. So I, I teach people when, when I teach classes or write, I, I teach people uh, the, the the danger and the advantages of, of borrowing money. But, but you, you have to be careful when you borrow money. 
uh, people get excited about asset protection, about getting sued, but very few people go broke because they get sued. A lot of people go broke because they borrow money and can't pay it back. So, so debt is the enemy. Uh, that, that's what you have to worry about and, and understand. And once you know how to use that properly, uh, then it's a terrific tool for you. When someone is getting started learning about real estate, my experience in the real estate education business has been that there are a lot of scam artists selling information that may or may not be accurate. How can someone who's interested in learning learn to detect the scam artist information versus the solid information from wise and experienced investors? And, and, and that's a good question because you're absolutely right. There are, there are a lot of smooth talkers out there who are not actually in the real estate business and don't actually own anything, but they will sell you uh, their, their system or their idea. And, and generally, uh, well, one sign is they'll, they'll charge you a lot of money for it. Uh, <laughs> I've been teaching seminars for uh, nearly 40 years, and uh, I think the most I've ever tossed, charged for a seminar for a three-day seminar is about $600, about $200 a day. So if you find somebody that's charging you thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, you know, twenty or $30,000 for some secret, uh, they're just ripping you off. Uh, but there's a lot of legitimate education taught by people who are, who are really in the business who, who don't charge that much because they don't have to. I mean, it's not their main business. They're not paying somebody a large commission to get you in the door. Uh, <clears throat> I would think that, that unless, unless you have a referral from somebody who has heard somebody speak, and, and thinks that they're legitimate and thinks that they know what they're talking about, uh, I, w- I certainly wouldn't write a check. I might go listen to somebody, but my advice to people is if they're going to some of these uh, come-on seminars, you know, free seminars, uh, is to leave your checkbook at home because they have some very good salesmen in the back of the room of those seminars. And, and I've seen them sign people up for credit cards and then book their credit cards for thousands of dollars. And, you know, those are comments. Uh, so stay away from from those outfits. There's a lot of great books written on real estate investment. I mean, one of the first ones I read was was Bill Nickerson's book, How I Turned a Thousand Dollars into a Million Dollars in My Spare Time, and he's rewritten that. And Bill's Bill's dead now, but uh, he and I shared the same birthday. We were friends years ago. Uh, Jay Desim has written some good books. Donald Trump's first book, The Art of the Deal, is good. Bill Zeckendorf's book is good. I think my book is good. Al Lowry, who is uh, uh, Bill's. Uh, uh, partner for a while, wrote, wrote a couple of good books, and Bob Brush wrote some good books. He's a student of mine. Uh, Bob Allen, who's a student of mine, has written a couple of good books, one called Nothing Down. So, so there's a lot of stuff you can read out there uh, that, that'll get you started. But then it's, it's trial and error. I mean, the, the lessons you're going to learn uh, the best are, are when, when you make a mistake and it costs you $1,000. I can talk to you about the mistakes I've made that cost me a lot more than that. And, and you'll probably remember some of it, but when you make a mistake, you will remember so, uh, you know, the, the, the answer is that you have to get into the, the field. You have to go out and take some chances. And that's why I've always encouraged people to take small chances. You know, I taught a class for years I called Making It Big on Little Deals. And uh, I explained to people that, you know, you're much better off doing five little deals a year than one big one because you're going to make some mistakes in there. But the chances are pretty good if you make five deals, that one or two of them will turn out really good. And then if the three the other ones are, are, are not very good and you're just beginning, that they don't cost you much money, well, you don't lose much money. You're still in business. But if you get into one big deal and it goes bad, you're probably done. 
the real estate education industry. I remember when I was in college, I went to a seminar and it was a Russ Whitney seminar. And I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but I just remember being so hot under the collar to sign up for the $35,000, uh, you know, coaching package. And I was at the back of the room ready to put it on a credit card. And, you know, they're like, you got to do it now. Well, I had to, no, I got to wait, you know, and thankfully, I'm so thankful. One of the biggest, it would have been one of the biggest financial mistakes I ever made. Thankfully, I let my dad talk me out of it and he talked a little sense into me. I'm so grateful to him now that he did so. But just that something about the real estate industry where where you take, it seems as though people take the statistic and say more people have become self-made millionaires in real estate than just about anything else, which is probably true. And they twist that into a sales seminar that is heavy on hype and low on density of information. And I'm so thankful I avoided that now. But it's it's sobering to me realize how close I was to wrecking my financial life at that stage in life. Well, keep spreading the word because, uh, you know, high-priced education, and it's not just in the real estate business. I, I even think that uh, some colleges uh, are, are going the wrong direction, charging people, you know, more money than $35,000, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars for a degree that they can't use to get a job. Um, you know, the people people think just because they get education, uh, they're going to get a paycheck, and obviously that's not true. Uh, so, so it's a it's a challenge. It's a challenge. But I, again, you know, I, I got all my my college education in the public school system. I went to a junior college here in town. I went to University of Florida. Uh, both good schools, uh, but you know, it's a lot cheaper than going to some private school. Uh, and and I feel like I've got a good I've received a good education. And and uh, so I encourage kids. And I've been on boards of schools. I, I do. A, you know, I I, I really encourage kids to get a good education at a, at a reasonable price, um, and then that's why I continue to teach. You mentioned leverage and the advantages and pitfalls. Uh, I'd like to come back and ask you to expand on that a little bit, because this is one of the biggest debates and concerns and questions that people face. How would you give an outline, a framework, of a way to think about leverage and to appreciate the advantages of it and the disadvantages that would help somebody think through their situation and see what would be best for them? Well, I've written a lot on this, so it's going to be hard to condense it into a two or, two or three-minute answer. But the, 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 the short answer, I guess, is, is whenever you borrow money, uh, first of all, I don't think you should borrow money unless you're buying investments. I don't think you should borrow money to live on. I don't think you should borrow money to buy a house to live in. I don't think you should borrow money to buy cars or get in the credit card debt. I think personal debt is, is, is just a, an anchor, you know, just kind of drags you down. So and unless you can afford to buy that car for cash, unless you can afford to, to buy a toy or take a trip on cash, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm against it. Now, I know that's not that popular. Uh, uh, you know, most of the world operates on credit nowadays. And, and people who have jobs can, can pay those credit card bills back, but I've never been a fan of, of personal credit. On the other hand, an investment credit's a different animal. Uh, if, if I find somebody who will sell me a house and will sell it to me with a down payment that I have today and will carry back a note, will carry back the financing with payments that I can afford to make with the rent I collect after paying my expenses, that's not a high-risk debt to me. Uh, if, if I lose that house, and I will say I've never lost a house that I've bought like that, but if I did lose that house, I would simply give it back to the people I bought it from, 
they would probably be happy with that transaction, but they, they haven't been hurt. I mean, they, they keep my down payment, they get their house back, they haven't been damaged, and, and the law is pretty clear on this. Uh, if I finance a house, if I buy a house from you and say I buy a $100,000 house and I give you $10,000 down and you finance $90,000 for me and the payments are going to be $500 a month and I can afford to, you know, I can rent that house for maybe $950 and pay the taxes and insurance and maintenance and still have $500 left to pay you and maybe a little bit for my, for myself. Uh, if I can't make those payments and give that house back, I don't owe you the ninety thousand dollars. You you've received the house back, so there's 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 no no, no debt to pursue there. So I see that kind of uh, leverage as is a totally different animal than either borrowing cash from a bank to go out and buy property, or or to you know borrow from a credit card company or a car dealer to buy buy a car or something else. Um, so it, it's uh, important that people understand that difference. If you go borrow cash and then use that cash to buy a house, it puts you under some pressure. And I've seen people do that. I've seen people refinance maybe their personal residence or some other property they have, and, and now they have $50,000 cash in the bank, earning 0.6%, and are under a lot of pressure to use that $50,000 cash to go out and buy something, and they're paying interest on that $50,000 cash. Well, that, that's not a strong strategy. A much better strategy, and I will say I will say something that will make sense to some of your listeners, not to all of them. But you make your best deals in this business not when you have a lot of money. You make your best deals in this business when you're broke. Because when I find somebody who wants to sell a house and I want to buy that house, but I don't have any money, the only option we have is for them to finance it for me, and they will. Uh, if I have fifty thousand dollars, then I can give them fifty thousand dollars. And uh, that, that makes the deal maybe better for them, but it doesn't make it better for me. It puts me at higher risk. So in the, in the, when you leverage an investment property, uh, and you've got to get your head around this, but the, the more you put down, the more you have a risk. It is safer to buy that $100,000 house with $5,000 down than it is with $100,000 or $50,000 down. Because if I put $50,000 down, I have $50,000 I can lose. And uh, if I mismanage it or something goes wrong with the real estate or something goes wrong with the real estate market, I have a lot more at risk than I do with $5,000 down. And I'll tell you a story. I've, I've sold a bunch of properties here. You know, I, I buy and sell. I, I mostly buy and hold. But we, we sold a property to a young man here a couple of years ago uh, before this last downturn. <clears throat> and he paid me a price for it. It was a retail price at the time. And I financed the house for him. And then the prices of the houses dropped. Uh, in my town, they dropped almost in half in some areas. So this house went from about $250,000 to about $150,000 in value. And he came back to me and he said, uh, John, I, you know, it, it's not worth two fifty dollars anymore. Uh, he gave me a small down payment and he owed me owed me the money. And I said to him, we'll, we'll make a deal. Rather than uh, you walking away from this, we'll adjust the payments so you can afford to keep making me the payments because the house was rented and it was making money. Uh, but then we stretched out the loan so he could pay me back years down the road uh, when prices went back up, and they had come back up. So now he's got a profit in his house, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to recover my money at some point. And it's been a good deal for both of us. Well, that, that's a conversation that it was easy for me to have with somebody because I sold him that house and carried the financing. If he would have borrowed the money to buy that house from a bank and gone down to the bank and tried to have that conversation, it wouldn't have worked. You know, he, he probably lost the house. So there's some major advantages to, to learning how to do this right. And the people that do master the idea of buying property and having sellers finance it for them, you know, buy a lot of property. They're not limited in how much they can buy, and uh, they make money every time they buy something. You made an astounding statement in one of your books 
where you said that in several, in many decades of investing in real estate, you've never borrowed money from a bank to buy property. Is that true? It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. I mean, if if you've had that experience, if you've had the experience of going down to a bank and borrowing money to buy a house, you you know how aggravating that can be to start with. Right. They want all they want all your financial information, tax returns, and uh, and here's the really bad part: the paperwork you sign when you borrow money from a bank gives them a lot of power. They can weigh a lot of your rights. Uh, You know, they don't even have to. uh, that they can foreclose pretty much when they want to, uh, because if they're if they feel like their get their their uh, collateral is in jeopardy or you're not maintaining the house or you know, a lot of little reasons, they can foreclose if they want to. Now, as a practical matter, banks don't want houses, so they're not going to foreclose unless you stop making the payments most of the time. But it puts you at risk, and uh, it also you know if, if in, a, in a state like Florida and a lot in a lot of states that that do have personal liability when you borrow money. Uh, the bank can get what's called a deficiency judgment. You know, if you borrow two hundred thousand from them and, and your house sells for one hundred and fifty, in most times, and there's been some unusual times lately, but in most times you would still owe that other fifty thousand dollars, and the banks would pursue you for it. So if you had a savings account or, or other assets, they wouldn't forgive that fifty thousand dollars. They would make you pay it back. So it's the most dangerous money you can borrow is from a bank, and uh, because their paperwork. Uh, and and you know, the other part, if you're an investor and you own a lot of properties, uh, you you may not want to uh, fill out fill out a financial statement every time you buy a house and, and show them everything you have. I certainly wouldn't. Uh, so in all my years, I've never borrowed money from a bank to buy a house. My listener base of this show varies from very experienced to very new, and so to the experienced people, what you just said would sound fairly normal. And I recognize that I think real estate financing strategies is better taught with a book. But could you just mention to the to the listeners who that just sounds crazy? How can I buy houses without borrowing a bank? Could you mention just a few of the ideas in in general that have been helpful? You mentioned seller financing. Um, you just give a brief overview on seller financing uh, to explain to somebody how that works, and then also some of maybe the other strategies that you can use to avoid borrowing from a bank. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm looking at a house right now. I, I bought three houses this year. Uh, I'm looking at another one right now that uh, folks have had for sale for more than a year. Uh, it's been empty for more than a year. Uh, their mother owned it, and the mother has moved uh, far, far away now to live with the children in a, in a different state. Uh, so they're, they're, uh, they, they thought they were going to sell this house. Our market's pretty good right now, and uh, but they have not been able to sell it. And uh, so I'm, I'm making them an offer. Uh, asking them to carry back the financing uh, for the next 20 years. Uh, the mother is in her, her late 70s. There's, there's a good chance she's going to live 20 more years. And the fellow told me one time, it's, it's uh, inconvenient to run out of money uh, before you run out of life. You know, you don't want to take a 10-year loan if you're going to live 20 more years. You want that income to come in forever. Uh, so I'm going to make them an offer uh, and asking them to finance that house over the next 20 years at today's interest rates. Now, a major advantage we have is today's interest rates, I think, are below what they should be. Now, when, when you can get a house loan, a 30-year house loan for someplace in the 4% range, that's unusually low. I've been doing this for a long time, and, and you can go back and look at historical interest rates back as far as you want to. They're all online, of course. And you'll see that 4% doesn't seem to be normal. Normal is more like 5 or 6 or 7 or 8%. So I, I think when you can borrow money at a, at a rate 
like today's rate, 3 or 4%, it's a terrific deal. Well, if I can borrow money, if these people, and I'm actually, understand, I'm not actually borrowing money. They're not lending me money here. What they're doing is financing the sale of this house. If they will finance the sale of this house for me with a 4% interest rate over the next 20 years and let me make a down payment that makes them comfortable, and, and you know, my, my, my first offer is going to be 5% down, but I'm willing to put up to 20% down if the deal works for them. Um, but, you know, the reason people hesitate to finance sales of properties is, one, they're not sure they're going to get paid back. Uh, well, you can you can tell them stories about how you've lived in this town all your life and you've always paid your debts, and, and they can check you out, and that'll probably make them feel somewhat better. But what really makes them feel good is for you to put down a bigger down payment. So if I can afford to put down 10 or 15 or 20 percent, then they're pretty confident that after that kind of investment that they won't get the house back, that they're going to get their payments every month for the next 20 years. Well, you know, you have to do the math now. You have to know what a house will rent for. You have to know what your expenses are going to be, your taxes and insurance, and then you, you have to estimate maintenance. Uh, I would caution you not to buy houses that are, that are in really poor shape. Uh, I, I like to buy houses that are in, in good shape. Uh, I buy houses sometimes that are brand new. I bought 20 or 30 brand new houses. I, I bought a number of houses from folks who have rehabbed them and done a nice job. Uh, if somebody has rehabbed the house, check it out carefully and make sure that they have done the wiring and the plumbing uh, up to code and air conditioning and heating work, you know, so, so everything works well. Because sometimes people rehab things themselves and, and you know, they, they'll cut a corner. You don't want to buy something that has a, a bad, bad wiring. Um, but if, if you're buying a, a house in decent shape and you're buying it with payments that are low enough to, to cover so you can rent it and your tenants can pay back the payments plus the taxes, insurance, and the maintenance, and you can buy it with a relatively low down payment, your rate of return on your investment is good. Uh, you know, I, I hold houses until they at least double one time in value, and that's my policy. Most of the houses I own have doubled two or three times in value. But if you know, if I buy something for the short term, and, and sometimes it takes seven or eight years, sometimes it takes ten years for a house to double in value. But if I buy a house with ten or twenty percent down, and I hold it until it doubles in value, let's say that you know this house is a three hundred thousand dollar house. So if I buy it with sixty thousand dollars down and wait for it to go up to six hundred thousand dollars, which would take ten years or so, my sixty thousand dollars is going to turn into about three hundred thousand dollar profit. And uh, you can you can calculate how much of a return that is if you'd like. In addition to that, of course, I'll be collecting rent during that period of time. And in addition to that, I'm going to be paying down the loan. So so that, that those types of investments, if, if you compare them to other things you can do with your money, generally will outperform anything else you can do. And and that's why I continue to do it. And probably the missing piece of information for somebody who's a novice is the art of. Uh, the, and correct, make sure I'm accurate in this, but the art of real estate investing, probably the primary um, skill is being able to find and negotiate and set up the deal. You can't do that on a retail house where you have a young family that's moving te- from one town to another and they need all the cash up front out of their uh, out of you know out of their money to fund the down payment on their out of their equity to fund the down payment on their next house. But if you can find the deal where it can work, and, and maybe you can make a deal like that work if you can get it at a wholesale price and use an alternate form of financing other than seller financing. But the, the key is to find those deals. And that's what, one out of 10? It's not nine out of 10. It's one out of 10 that you can find to, to make it work without needing a bank loan. Is that accurate? Well, I'll tell you this. When I, when I teach a class, I only teach it once a year. I teach it here in Sarasota, Florida, and I'll teach it this year on January the 31st and February the 1st. Uh, the students in that class 
actually go out. We have an exercise one night, and we go through neighborhoods in, in this town. I identify about a half a dozen neighborhoods or so. And they walk down these streets, and they talk to people they meet, and they knock on doors, and they, they find empty houses, and they investigate the empty houses. And we look for, for situations where we can find a seller who will carry owner financing. That, that's our goal. And on a house that's in good shape, in a decent neighborhood, on a good street, a house that we can rent. So it's got to meet all that criteria, too. And we've always found one. And we do that in two hours. So the, 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 the lesson here is that there are always those properties available. Uh, you know, you have to, to do some work to find them. People aren't going to call you and say, I want to sell you my house. I mean, I have had that happen because I've been doing this for a long time and people know I buy houses. But probably if you're just starting, you're not going to get many phone calls like that. But you can go out and find a house that's been sitting empty for a while. And it's just, this is a common sense business. If you think about yourself, if you had a house that was sitting empty for a year and you've been mowing the grass for a year or shoveling the snow or whatever you have to do in your town, and making the payments and paying the taxes and paying the insurance, at some point you're going to wake up and say, let's just get rid of this house. We're not going to make any money on this house, but maybe we can make it back someplace else. And once you make that decision as a seller, if I can find you as a buyer, I can make a really good deal for me, and you'll be happy too. I have never had anybody that I've bought a house from be unhappy. They're all happy. They are happy to get rid of a house because that house is not doing them any good I'm happy to buy the house because I know what I'm going to do with it. I know I'm going to rent it and hold it until it's free and clear and continue to enjoy that income the rest of my life. And if my kids get in the business, they can enjoy it the rest of their life. I mean, that income goes on forever and it goes up a little bit every year. So so there, there are opportunities out there in any market. Uh, and I guess there are probably some towns that are so small that it might be harder to find the right one. Uh, but if you live in a town of any size at all, and some of my most successful students come from towns of four and 6,000 people, so they're making it work there, uh, it, it works. You know, there, there's always opportunity. And this is not a new idea. I mean, it probably goes back to the ancient Greeks or something, but I've talked to uh, people who are my grandfather's age who have been buying property like this, you know, 50 years ago, 75, 100 years ago. So, you know, this is not a new concept. People have been financing property when they sell it for a long time. As a practical matter, during certain times in the economy, that's the only way you can get rid of some, of some properties. This show, we talk a lot about building wealth and how to start and how to build a wealth plan. You have the story of something I've, I've t- mentioned briefly, but that when you were getting started on your wealth plan, you actually chose to rent your residence while accumulating investment houses. Could you explain why you did that, how that helped you, and why that might be a, a useful uh, consideration for a young person getting started that seems, uh, seems a little odd to many people? Well... If you think about what happens, uh, most people, when they when they go to buy that first house, will buy probably the most house they can afford, and sometimes they buy a house they can't afford. You know, they buy a, a nicer house than they can afford, and they really stretch to buy that house. And then, of course, after you buy a house, then it's not over. You know, you, you get to buy furniture. And then you get to, to, to fix that house, and then pretty soon you'll get to remodel that house. And, and what young folks find that, that go out and buy a house to live in early in their lives is that house consumes all their money for a long, long time. 
uh, and it can be forever. I mean, that may be the only property they ever buy. So you have to ask yourself a question. Is this house that we're buying to live in a good investment? And the, answer, the second question might be, for who? Uh, it might be a good investment for your children if they inherit it, but the whole time you own that house, if you think about what's going on, you're putting money into it. That house has never given you any money back. There's never going to be any cash flow coming to you from that house, and, and it consume, can consume a lot of your money. Well, if you own the house free and clear, it would consume a lot less of your money. And, and of course, in our society, it's not unusual at all that people would refinance the house that they live in and take some extra cash out to go buy a car, go on vacation, or, or put a home equity loan on the house they live in and use that money to go out and buy something else. So they uh, pretty much, uh, you can find people who are 65 years old who are still in debt on their house. They refinanced it two or three times. So they may never own that house free and clear, and that house may, may be really a burden to them at some point in their life. Uh, my, my advice is, is to kind of take a contrary approach to that. And what I did, and what I recommend others to do, and a lot of people have followed this advice, is rather than going out and buying a house when, you, when you're first getting married and first getting started, consider renting a house. You can rent a nice house in a nice subdivision for less than what it costs you to buy it. And, and uh, I've always rented nice houses that are on, I live in a, in a waterfront community here in Sarasota. So every place I've rented has always been on the water. And uh, I have found that when I go and, and buy, rent a house in a, in a very nice part of town in a nice community, I can rent it for a fraction of what it costs me to buy it. Uh, so I don't give up lifestyle. I get to live in a nice house, but I get to live in a nice house for, for a lot less money than it would cost me if I bought that house. Now, because I don't have the burden of a big house payment, and I don't have the uh, the burden of having to remodel that house or or even buy really nice furniture, because you live in a rental house, you know, you can get by with uh, even secondhand furniture if you like. You don't have to go to the store and buy all new stuff. Well, you can live pretty cheaply. Uh, if I was a single guy, I would probably have roommates. I would be living really cheaply. I'd be having other people pay most of the rent. But I've been married for 34 years, so a roommate and I share expenses. And uh, But we rented a house, and for 10 years before I bought the house, and I paid cash when I bought it, for 10 years before I rented, before I bought a house, uh, we rented uh, at, at a re really good rates, and I, I would use my money then to focus on buying investment properties. Well, the investment properties I bought and held for 10 years went up in value enough, the loans paid down enough, that I could take two or three of those investment properties after 10 years, sell them and take the cash and buy the house we wanted to live in for cash. So I didn't have to finance it. And by doing that, and because I was a cash buyer, I was able to, to negotiate a good price on the house that we finally bought. And uh, now we've lived in that house for more than 30 years. Uh, we have remodeled it three times. So I, I don't even want to think about how much money I've invested in that house since that time, since we bought it. But I can tell you this, if, if I'd have bought that house the first day, instead of waiting 10 years, and if I'd finance that house with a 30-year loan on it, uh, you know, I, I probably it would have been paid for now, uh, but it, it would have kept me from buying a lot of investments. If you think about what an investment house does for you, if instead of buying a house to live in, you go out and buy a house as an investment, you rent it, you're paying down the loan, it's going up in value, you actually get some tax shelter if you need it, and then if you need some money, it's not an emotional thing to sell an investment house and take the cash and go out and use it to do something. Uh, it, it is an emotional thing if you have to sell your the house you live in. 
if you're forced to sell that house, or if you go borrow more against that house and do something, that that's an emotional event. Uh, so I want to I want to uh, emphasize that it, it's it's just a it's a better strategy not to get into to a lot of debt uh, and tied into a lot of debt, and especially by buying too much house to start with. If you're going to buy a house, buy something simple. Back when I was a kid, my parents lived in a very small house. My grandparents lived in a smaller house. Uh, what, what we've seen today, and I've been involved with a group called uh, First the Habitat for Humanity for about 25 years, and now I chair the Fuller Center for Housing, both the nonprofit uh, housing providers, and, and we build very simple, decent houses for people who, who don't have much income but who need a place to live. And, and even those houses are bigger. Uh, the Habitat houses have, have become bigger over the years, and uh, we started the Fuller Center to build smaller and smaller houses. So we, we, we focus on building houses we can sell to, to families for about $50,000 with no interest and no profit, and that allows a, a family who doesn't make much money to afford a house. Well, I'm not suggesting you move into a floor center house or a habitat house, but you can find some pretty simple houses out there to buy for a lot less money. And if you start off smaller uh, and then work your way up, you know it, it, that's a that's a more more fun path in life than than having to uh, step down. There was a lot of people during this last recession that, that owned a really nice house and they lost it, and now they're in a much smaller house. So start off in a smaller house. Think about a strategy of renting for a while and investing. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's not something you have to do forever, but uh, when when you accumulate some capital and you're able to buy a house for cash, uh, you get a lot of satisfaction out of owning your own home free and clear. Economic cycles change over time, and you wrote an entire book on this called "Building Real Estate Wealth in a Changing Market," and it was published in 2007. What impact do economic conditions, recessions, uh, growth periods, uh, inflation of real estate prices, decreasing of real estate prices, what do those conditions, what impact do those conditions have on a real estate investor? And how does a wise real estate investor negotiate and navigate successfully through whatever the economic cycle we're in? Well, we could go on for a few hours here. Well, you did write a whole book on it, so I assume I assume you got a few things to say on it. First of all, accept a couple things. Number one, there will be cycles. There'll, there'll be cycles in the business world, in the credit market, and taxes, and your personal life. They're just you know, you have good days and bad days. You have good years and bad years, and, and there's there's opportunities during uh, all those different times, different opportunities. Uh, number two, you can anticipate. You can anticipate. It's very hard to predict what's going to happen. I had a guy call me the other day and said he's predicted the last five recessions to the day. I said, "When did you predict them?" Well, I think he predicted them last week. You know, it's easy to predict them five <laughs> years ago. It's hard to predict them for the next five years. Nobody that I knew uh, anticipated the last downturn. Now, there's people now that claim they did, but <laughs> not they didn't do it in advance. Uh, so it, it, it's uh, you can't you can't foretell the future. So what you have to do is, is you have to have a strategy that protects you and and and, and, and that you profit from. Uh, if we're going to have uh, the Great Depression or or big runaway uh, inflation, big big uh, runaway economy, uh, you you have to play both sides of it. So you have to have some assets that are safe in case we had the big downturn. Then on the other hand, you want to have some assets that, that are in a position to, to make you a big profit. You know, if we have a, a, a great market, so it, it's a it's an interesting discussion. 
Uh, and, and uh, you know, I've gone through four major recessions in this town in the last uh, 40 years, and, and, the, and the first one was a real learning experience. I've, I've been fortunate I've never gone broke because I've never had a bank loan. You know, I've always had owner financing, so when we have these recessions, I can go back to the people I bought the houses from and say, you can either have the houses back or we can, we can talk about what will work during this economy. Uh, and an interesting thing we've learned is, is uh, this last downturn, even though prices dropped by about 50% in our town, the rents didn't drop that much. They came down 10 or 15%. Uh, people needed, you know, they still wanted to live inside, and, and folks who lost their houses, of course, became tenants. Uh, we we it created a, an interesting situation where we had a shortage of, of houses that were available for rent because a lot of the houses of foreclosure were not available for rent. Uh, a lot of the houses that were being rehabbed were only half fixed up, so they weren't available for rent. So we ended up with a shortage of rental houses, and we ended up with a lot of folks who wanted to be tenants because they were moving out of the houses they lost. Uh, so the rents didn't come down as much, uh, but every cycle is different. And, and the next uh, the next major cycle we have is, is bound to be different than the one we just went through. This last one was caused by a credit crisis. The next one will probably be caused by something else. The '86 one was caused by a big tax law change. So you just can't you know anticipate exactly what's going to happen next. But you can you can have a safe portfolio. You can have a portfolio that if prices do drop 20 or 30 percent, you survive. Uh, if they go up 20 or 30 percent, you're in a position to, to take a nice profit. And uh, some of this just comes through experience. And, and uh, as I said, you know, I teach people, I tell stories about what I've done and, and what has worked for me and, and the mistakes we've made. But you're really going to learn this by doing it. Uh, so, you know, if you'll learn to be safe, as safe as you can be, then hopefully you'll never go broke. You know, when you have a downturn, you'll be in a position to uh, survive. And, and then when. Uh, when, when everybody else is getting out of the business, if, if you've got your head on straight and uh, you have the ability to buy, you make some of the best deals of your life, of course, when everybody else is selling and everybody says real estate will never come back, it's a terrible idea to buy real estate, that's the time to buy. A lot is made when you go to a real estate investment seminar about the tax efficiency of, of real estate. And for many people who've never owned investment property, it's kind of a new concept. Could you explain just briefly some of the general principles that do make independent you know, real estate investment uh, useful and efficient from a tax perspective as to why it is so advantageous in many ways? Well, there are probably two simple things. One, when you buy a property uh, at, at a below market price, of course, that profit that you're making is tax-free to you today. I like to tell the story about Donald Trump, who came down to West Palm. He bought a $6 million house for $3 million. Well, when you buy a $6 million house for $3 million, and, and those are real numbers, you actually made $3 million, but that $3 million isn't taxable to you. And what Donald did shortly thereafter, I think, is I think he borrowed against it. So he may have put a million dollars in his pocket. He may have borrowed $4 million against the house he paid $3 million for. And, of course, that borrowed money is not taxable to you. So in his situation, he, he bought a $6 million house for $3 million, borrowed $4 million against it. And I'm just making these numbers up, but that's probably somewhat true. true. Uh, and uh, all, then he hadn't paid a dime of taxes yet, and he still owns this house with $2 million in equity in it. Well, you're not going to buy a $6 million house, but the same tax laws apply to you when you buy a $100,000 house for $90,000 or $80,000. I mean, you're, you're, you're making that profit, and you're making it without paying taxes. 
I have a student who's a, who's a medical doctor, and uh, he makes good money uh, practicing medicine, uh, but he pays a lot of taxes because the income that he makes practicing medicine is all personal income, is taxed at the highest rate. So he decided years ago to start taking a couple months a year off, and, and when he took a couple months a year off, his goal during that couple months a year was to go out and buy two or three houses. And he would do that. And he'd go out and buy a house, and he'd buy it below market, because he knew if he could go out and buy a, a house that was worth 150000 for 125, that's $25,000 in profit that he can push off and not pay taxes on today, and, and it would grow over time. And, of course, that growth is also tax-free. So if he buys that $150,000 house for one twenty-five and he holds it until it doubles in value, now it's worth $300,000, all that profit that's accumulated is still tax-free to him. Uh, you know, and, and the rents that come in, they're going to be taxable. But if he wanted to borrow against that house or if he wanted to sell that house, he could pay taxes at a lower rate on his profits than he would on money he earned practicing medicine. Uh, the, the highest tax rates are charged to, to people who work and are so, subject to uh, payroll taxes, Social Security taxes, Medicare taxes, and ordinary income taxes. Those folks often, and, and if you live in a state, and this just fellows in California, you live in a state that has a state income tax, he was paying about 50% of his income in taxes, round figures. Uh, well, if he can, if he can stop, and you know, if he has enough money to live on, and he can stop, uh, uh, you know, live, stop earning income, and then use some of his time to buy property, buy investment property, to provide him tax-free income and long-term capital gain profits down the road. Uh, he can accumulate a large net worth and at the same time uh, live, live a more tax-efficient life. Now, if you think about it, if I buy a house, the house I bought in 1973, which I still own, and it's doubled in value several times, uh, I don't have to pay taxes on that profit until I sell it. And I don't ever have to sell it. There's a good chance that I'll leave that house to my children in, in their estate, and, and when they inherit that property, uh, there's, a, there's a part of the law that talks about what happens to the, to the taxable basis when you inherit property. But the current law is that the people that inherit the property get a stepped-up basis. And what that means is, is if I bought, and I bought that property for 30000 it's worth more than three hundred today. Let's say when they inherited it, it's worth $400,000. Uh, they, they would receive a basis, a new basis of the fair market value the date of my debt, which might be $400,000. They could then sell that house for $400,000 the next day and pay no taxes on it. So that whole transaction, that $30,000 original investment that grew to $400,000, they inherited, and now they sold. That whole transaction is tax-free. There's, there's no income tax paid on it. So uh, there are some strategies that, that benefit rich people, if to say it out loud, uh, and that rich people understand, and it has to uh, do with asset accrual and asset appreciation, uh, that, that benefit folks who, who, who do this, uh, and, and wealthy people have been using these for years, of course. Do you have a, many people in, a, in today's world of uncertainty, especially with some of the fluctuations in the, the publicly traded uh, stock market, uh, look to real estate and their money's in their IRAs? So I've seen a real growth in the interest of using self-directed IRAs, self-directed ESAs, HSAs, and investing in real estate through those accounts. Do you have any perspective, opinions, observations, or experience on people doing that and the advantages and disadvantages of that type of approach with real estate? 
when you say IRA, you may be talking about more than one type of, of, of vehicle here. You can have a, a traditional IRA that uh, distributes its profits uh, as taxable income to the beneficiaries because when they made contributions to that IRA, they deducted the contributions. Okay? That, that, that's certainly a different uh, type of investment vehicle than, than the Roth IRA, which is uh, started about 14 years ago. And a Roth IRA allows people to make contributions to a, a retirement plan that are non-deductible. You don't get a deduction today. But then when the uh, withdrawals are made and, and profits take, are taken out, they are tax-free. So you, first of all, you have, to, you have to separate these two ideas because there's different strategies for these two different types of investment plans. If you have a Roth IRA that allows you to take properties out, uh, profits out tax-free, uh, you can always take your, your contributions out tax-free, but you can take your profits out tax-free, too. Then uh, investing in something that's going to have a lot of appreciation over time makes a lot of sense. If you have a traditional IRA or a qualified pension plan, investing in an asset that's going to produce capital gains does not make any sense. Because if you have a large capital gain personally and you pay the tax on that, your rate's going to be relatively low, tax of capital gains rates. If you have a large capital gain inside a retirement plan, a qualified plan or, or a regular IRA, when that profit comes out, it's going to be taxed to you at ordinary income rates. So you might be paying twice as much in taxes. Uh, so hope everybody's clear on that. The Roth IRA is an excellent tool to use for real estate investors who understand how to use it. Uh, unfortunately, and we're seeing a lot of this now, but, that there's a lot of uh, people investing in business properties in the Roth IRA, which is not allowed. Uh, there, there are people that are self-dealing. They try to sell things to themselves, or they try to borrow money from the Roth IRA. They, you know, they, they make prohibited transactions, and they don't understand they're doing this. They're getting bad advice sometimes. And, and if you do this, then when, when you get caught, if you get caught, uh, the penalties are stiff. You're going to end up paying taxes on all the money, probably, plus penalties. So investing in real estate in an IRA is possible, uh, and I encourage it, but I encourage it only with, with uh, really good information. Uh, if you don't know how to do it, uh, you, you need to, to get some good advice, and, and not, not from one of your high-priced seminars, you know, not from a $30,000 seminar. So those guys will just make up some good stories for you. But, you know, from a real CPA, from a real tax attorney, from somebody who's in the business, and there, there's some good folks in the business who will give you the straight scoop, it's, it's the law. You can read the law, but the, the too many people uh, try, try to get around the law somehow, and, that, and that's not a good strategy. So the, the important thing to understand, though, at the beginning is there's, there's two types of plans. You don't want to invest in a traditional plan in assets that produce long-term capital gains because you're paying twice as much in taxes. Is I think I think he's a friend of yours. Is Peter? Is it Peter Fortunato? Is his seminar a good resource for people? I think he does a whole seminar on that. Am I right? There are a number of people to do. Yeah, Pete Fortunato and Dykes Botterford teach a class in Atlanta once a year on IRA investing, and, and I, I would recommend that. They're, they're both very bright people. Yeah, I've wanted to. I've I've got that one on my list of classes to take because it's a. Uh, I'm familiar with the tax law side of it, but not from the specific real estate perspective. So it's on my list of classes to take. Um, do you? have any sense. One of the things that I encourage people to look at, 
when they're building out their wealth plan is to try to figure out where their highest rate of return is going to come from as far as where their investment highest rate of return potential is. And that's going to be different for each person. But I'm just curious, with your decades of experience, do you have any either sense, gut sense, or do you have any metrics that you've actually tracked to have an idea of how much what your average rate of return has been over the years with your good deals and bad deals just over the course of your career? Sure. <laughs> it's our business. That's what we do. Uh, we pay a lot of attention to which investments make us the most money and, uh, you know, and on an after-tax basis because that's the only part that really counts. Uh, and and uh, a lot of the things I've talked about today come into play there. This, this untaxed part of the capital gain that you're able to defer until you sell or, or leave it to your kids is a big part of that. Uh, you know, long before I was in the real estate business, I, I, uh, I was involved in, in uh, charting stocks and playing commodity options, did some other things that, that where I was trying to make some money in a hurry. And, and I learned by, by studying the securities business a little bit and, and uh, commodity options, stock options, different things, that, that there's, a, there's a lot of different ways to make money. There's thousands of different ways to make money. You know, you can start a restaurant and make money. But, but what it comes down to for me is, is safety, uh, being able to sleep well at night, uh, lifestyle, being able to get away from something. I have good friends who play the stock market every day, and, and, and you know, they, they, uh, they won't take a day off because they're afraid something bad will happen to them. <laughs> and uh, in the real estate business, you can, you can take a day off. You know, I take months off sometimes. My, my view of retirement is a little different than some people. I wrote a course on retirement investing a couple of years a year and a half or so ago, and, and you know, I, I like to be able to retire on a day-by-day basis. If I want to take a day off, I want to be, I want to be able to take a day off and, and not have anything bad happen to my investments. And uh, so I've set my life up that way. I, I invest in things that, uh, that, that work with or without me. You know, if I get uh, run over by a bus or crash my airplane someplace, I, I, I want my investments to, to continue to, to produce income for my, my spouse and my heirs and, and uh you know, I just disappear on me. So it's not just a, it's, it's the investments that, that I have a lot of personal input. Now, I've, I've had some, of course, to buy the right properties and to manage them well, but without me, it still works. So, so, so that's an important part. As far as the amount of money we made, our overall rates of return over, over the time, you know, if you want to use just a round number, it's about 20%, you know, compounded over, over the last 40 years. So, so numbers do go up, and, and if you do that math, you're not going to figure out my net worth because... I spend a lot of money. I, I, we enjoy traveling. We we live in a nice house. We we, you know, we have kids scattered all over the world, so we uh, we we love taking our kids on on good vacations, scuba diving and skiing and doing things all over the world. Uh, but but uh, you know, twenty percent is not a return you get on an annualized basis over forty years unless you're pretty darn conservative. It, it's not a speculative thing. And people who speculate, uh, try to play markets, try to time markets, uh, rarely get those kind of returns. I've served on several foundation boards uh, that have a lot of money that are professionally managed, and, and they are pretty happy if they can make five or six or seven percent uh, over a twenty or thirty year basis. So, so this is uh, to, to make those kind of yields. You, you have to have uh, information uh, and, and and exercise it. You know, you have to, the other folks don't have. You have to you have to know how to do something that most people can't do. And, uh, and but it is learnable. This is not rocket science. Uh, I am certainly not a rocket scientist. I'm, I'm one of these guys who's, who's steady, who, uh, who has a plan, who stays the course, and, and I continue to teach so other people can learn how to do that. 
three final questions as we finish our, our interview here. The first one, how would somebody, if they're doing some self-evaluation and they're looking at what their skills are, what their abilities are, and they're trying to figure out if real estate is the right forum for them to dig into for their wealth plan, what does it take to be a good investor and how would you know if uh, you are, you're, you have that whatever you know whatever it is versus knowing whether you're better off better served pursuing wealth in another career or another area well, I think um, number one is probably delayed gratification uh, if you if you can uh, invest in something knowing that, that if you hold on to it for five or ten or fifteen years it'll make you a lot of money or probably make you a lot of money um, but, but it's not going to be a short-term uh, profit. It's going to be a longer-term profit. I, I, I think that, that, that fits well for real estate investment, and it's worked well for Warren Buffett. You know, The people that buy with the idea of not selling an investment but holding it for a long time are true investors. Uh, the people that buy with the idea they're going to sell it in a year or two and make a quick profit are speculators. And uh, so to be an investor, you have to have this long-term outlook, I think. Uh, the second thing is understanding money. Uh, if you if you don't if you're not good at math, if you didn't do well in, in the fourth grade, that's about as far as you need to go. But you know you need to be able to add, subtract. Uh, percentages are not a bad thing. And understanding the rule of seventy two is a good thing. Uh, knowing knowing how long it's going to take to double your money at different rates. Uh, understanding compound interest and being comfortable with the math side of it, so so you have some confidence in, in uh, your, your ability to grow money. And then the third thing is people skills we talked about earlier. Uh, if, if you are, are not willing to talk to people, manage people, uh, probably you're better off hiring somebody else to do that. That doesn't mean you can't invest in real estate, but the management is a key piece of this. You, you've mentioned a few different names. For somebody for whom this is their first introduction to real estate and they're interested and they say, I fit those criteria, and I'm interested in pursuing it. What would be some suggested, recommended resources, some, some a reading list, courses, and make sure to mention your own course that you do as well? Well, you know, it's a little self-serving, but, but I have been teaching people for a long time and, and have had some success. And, and uh, so I was just get on my website, which is uh, just Google John Schaub, that's C-H-A-U-B, and it'll pop up. We've, uh, over the years, written a lot. I've written a number of books. I've been writing a newsletter since the 70s. I've recorded uh, probably 15 different courses. Some of them are out of, not, not available anymore, but about 10 recent courses that are one-day courses on specific topics, and, and they're very helpful to folks. Other than that, I mean, I haven't read a, a contemporary book in a while that I thought was, was uh, right on point. But the books I mentioned earlier, you know, about no reason to repeat them, but the books I mentioned earlier were all good books. And I continue to read, and I continue to, to listen to other people speak and, and look for people who are ahead of me in the business so I can learn from them. And, of course, if you're just starting, uh, you need to be looking for folks who, who, who kind of can get you started. And uh, and I have a whole list of folks that on my website, different links you can go to. So I, I would start there. I would go to the website and, and read what I've published and, and uh log it for free and then then look at the links and and study those people. I know, final question, I know Habitat for Humanity is uh, a cause that's near and dear to your heart and you've been involved over decades as you mentioned earlier. Take just a moment and mention Habitat, the work that you do and what you've learned in helping and then how people can get involved with Habitat and, you know, what would be helpful and, and why they should consider it. Well, 
I was involved with Habitat for more than 20 years. Uh, I chair a board now called the Fuller Center for Housing, F-U-L-L-E-R, Fuller Center for Housing. And both of them do good work. Uh, the, uh, the, the Fuller Center was started a couple of years back to help people that are even poorer than the folks that, that Habitat is able to help. But we take existing houses, we renovate them, and then we sell them with no interest and no profit. So that, that's the focus of, of, my, of my efforts right now is with the Fuller Center. But both Habitat and Fuller Center do well. They're both widely known, so you can Google either one. And if they're active in your area, volunteer. It's, it's a great way to learn how to build a house. All my kids build houses and picked up those skills. And it's a great way to help uh, build community in your town where you bring people together to work on a project and, uh, you know, improve your town, uh, improve somebody's life, improve your life. So it's, it's all good work. It's all good news. Awesome. John, thank you so much for making the time to come on. This has been a wealth of information, and I thank you for, for being willing to do it. Okay. My pleasure, and uh, best of luck with all you're doing. Did you learn something? Remember, you too can do this. <laughs> this is not out of reach. Many people have done it. You too can do it. If you're interested, if this is something that appeals to you, start doing your homework. And we're coming up on a new year here. It's December 2014 as we come up on a new year here. Be thinking about how. what is your plan for the investment side of the equation? What's your plan for how to grow your wealth? Real estate can be a powerful way to do that. And so I encourage you to begin the journey. John's books would be a great place. I have uh, four of them. I have his book, Building Wealth, One House at a Time, Building Wealth, Buying Foreclosures, and Building Real Estate Wealth in a Changing Market. And I also have a book called Buying Right. Uh, so I would just recommend start with Building Wealth, One House at a Time. That's the best overview. Consider his seminar. I've heard great things about it. It's at the end of January in Sarasota, Florida. And so that would also be a great place to start. Might be a good uh, good place for you to go to to. Enhance your education and your knowledge for this new year. That's it for today's show. I thank you all for being with me. A couple quick announcements as we go out the door here. Number one, uh, the schedule for the rest of this show, for the rest of this week. Tomorrow, I have an interview for you with Scott Young. Scott is the man who did the MIT Challenge and uh, he was the one who essentially recreated his own MIT degree uh, without ever going to the school, without paying for it. Uh, on Wednesday, I'm going to bring you another technical show. We're going to do some technical end-of-the-year planning topics, and that will be the last of the technical shows for the year. I'm getting ready to take off for the next two weeks, working on a lot of business stuff behind the scenes and really trying to make some progress on that. So I'm just going to be releasing some interviews uh, next two weeks, but I will be releasing shows, so that way uh, you don't have to go without a show. Thursday, however, I'm bringing Jim Rawls, author of Survival Blog. Uh, back on the show he was very many of you really enjoyed the first interview that I did with him and it's a it's an interesting topic so we're going to talk a little bit about moving as a way to improve your lifestyle and save money both moving across the country and expatriation and different ideas for that Friday I'm going to be doing another Friday Q&A show and the next week I have an interview on Monday with for you with Ben Falk uh, from Whole Systems Design up in, up in Vermont Tuesday, I will be releasing an interview with um, Dr. Vern Poitras, who is a professor at a theological seminary, former mathematics, also a mathematics PhD. We're going to talk about um, children uh, briefly. 
Uh, Friday is an interview with Jeff Jeff from the Sustainable Life blog. We're going to talk about investing in your house. Um, then the following Monday will be Eva from Teens Got Sense, a fascinating young lady who writes a blog on uh, who writes a blog on finance for kids. And then I got a couple more as well that'll be coming up that week uh, also. So if you'd like to get in touch with me, Joshua at RadicalPersonalFinance.com. Twitter, we're at RadicalPF. Facebook.com slash RadicalPersonalFinance. Thank you all so much for your support. Um, consider joining the membership program, the Irregulars. If you haven't, details are at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash membership. And it may be in your best interest to join now because I am going to be substantially increasing the price. I'm making some progress on kind of the business planning ideas here, and I'm going to be substantially increasing the price in the future, but I'll keep it the same for those who join now. Thank you for listening to today's show. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. Your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. This show is not and is not intended to be any form of financial advice. Please develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy and consult them because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. Hold them accountable for your results. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please come by the show page and comment so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, thanks for being here. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.